Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, April 27th. 2022, and it is time for an interview, this time with Sean Mills, that is the Sean Mills of the Expert Council on Hack My Solar. Sean is going to talk to us today about setting up an off-grid remote property, whether you're going to live there full-time, build as you go, move straight in, or have it as a remote kind of bug-out location, get-away property, that type of thing. Before we get Sean on, though, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsor today. Our sponsor today is Paul Wheaton and Permies.com. Paul's a great guy, so when he asked to sponsor the show, uh, I said as soon as I have a spot open, I'll, I'll, I'll make it available to you, and I did that. Um, I really want you guys to check out permies.com if you've never done so. That's Paul's forum. You can also check out richsoil.com. But if you go to the show notes today, you're going to find links to two things. The giant, huge, amazing permaculture jamboree that he'll have going on in Montana this summer, that is going to be one of the coolest things that's ever been done in permaculture. You want to go check this out. And also kind of the professional level PDC, something that's designed for people that have maybe had a PDC already or they know a lot about permaculture, they want to go to another level. People that are uh, professional engineers, landscape designers, and things like that. It's kind of a unique next level of PDC. He's got a great program set up. Again, there'll be links in the show notes today where you can learn more about that. Next up, real quick, I'll do everything as far as housekeeping at the front end today. Um, I want to let you guys know, as always, you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go there, you'll help us out no matter what you buy, as long as you start your shopping there. Today's item of the day is the same as yesterday's because they're still on sale. The mono price releasable cable ties, 8-inch length is the ones that are on sale. Guys, I know they're just zip ties in your head. But I, what I want you to do is they're so damn cheap, order a couple bags of them. And then look at them compared to what you buy in a hardware store, like a Home Depot or a Lowe's. And just look at the quality difference. They're much thicker. They're much more robust. They last longer. Then let's add to it. They cost less. And then let's add to it. They have a little tab. You push it, and they release so you can reuse them. One of the top ten most useful items on my homestead, monoprice, releasable cable ties. I've been recommending them for five years now. There's a reason. Next up, if you want to support the show, the other way to do that is become a member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members to learn more about that. Or from the website anytime, you just go up to the tab at the top that says members and click on it. See all the discounts and all the benefits we give you, and you can sign up there. Remember, I take Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. What cryptocurrency? Any cryptocurrency that I'm either holding or one of the exchanges I use has listed. Because if I don't want it, I can send you send it to the exchange and I swap it over to Bitcoin. Uh, I also take uh, credit and debit cards, do that online. And occasionally people pay by check, money order, etc. and snail mail. I take that. And since crypto's really picked up, almost nobody does it anymore. But I do take silver. I have a, I have everything priced in silver as well, and you can order that through snail mail. Now, with the superior nature of crypto over precious metals for buying things when you're 
not sitting across the table from the guy. Most people don't use that, but it is there, and I thought I'd mention it. And barter. I eat, what? I don't know. Making an offer. I've done, I did trades for honey. Uh, I've done trades for a variety of things. So barter is better, and I will take it for membership as well. With that, let's drop on into the live feed and uh, hear from Sean Mills. And we are live, and I am here today with Sean Mills, the longtime member of the Survival Podcast community and a member of the Expert Council when his, uh, his uh, employment's not working him half to death like it has been lately. And uh, even with all the time he's been spending on the road lately with work, he uh, made time to be with us today. We're going to be talking about going off-grid with a remote property, where you're going off-grid because if you don't go off-grid, you ain't going to have no power at all. Before we do that, though, Sean, for folks that maybe are new to the show and haven't heard from you before, who and what is a Sean Mills, man? Let's get a little bit about your background. You're spacing out in high school, study hall, checking some chick out a few rows over, trying to figure out how to ask her out. You don't know what you want to do with your life. And how do you end up as a, as a professional engineer from that point? Well, so basically the the path was uh, out of high school. I did not want to go to college. I did not want to go to the military. Those were the two options that my family was kind of pushing me. I, I knew the, neither one of those was the right thing for me. Um, I thought, you know, maybe I'll take a gap year, as they say, and uh, make some money, and then maybe I'll go to college. I did have some scholarships lined up. And um, I got into construction. I got into industrial construction and started working at power plants and paper mills and chemical plants and oil refineries. And I actually really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the problem solving aspect of, you know, someone's got a problem. And if the problem isn't fixed, then this plant doesn't run. Um, so I got involved with that. Basically, for the past 22 years, I've worked in industrial construction. Uh, most of that has been in and around power generation. So whether that be hydro, nuclear, fossil fuels, both on the coal side years ago, and then, you know, more recently into um, combustion turbines and combined cycle facilities that run on natural gas. And so uh, through working there, I really became aware of how, um, we'll say, uh, delicate the grid is. And the grid is really a, it's a miracle of modern technology. Every time you turn your light switch on, the light comes on. And when you turn it off, the light goes off. And when you think about all the things that, that have to happen for that to actually occur and, and for it to be reliable, um, it's really crazy, but it's very, very fragile. And so after the 08 crisis, I decided, hey, you know, I really want to focus on getting more self-sufficient. And so I bought an off-grid property and uh, designed and installed my own um, PV solar system with battery backup and generator backup and moved my family off the grid. And then once we were off-grid, uh, we started doing things like rainwater collection, gray water management, growing a lot of our own food and things like that. And so um, after being a part of the survival podcast community for a while and regular being asked to um, design systems for other people, I decided to actually start a, a business doing that. So it's always been a side business for me. My day job uh, is still fulfilling. And so I'm not looking to exit that. Uh, but Hack My Solar has been something that I focused on to basically the people that are really serious about, hey, I need a design. I need some help. I need help with sourcing materials. Um, I help people out with that type of thing. 
Very cool. I wanted to ask you something a little off the cuff here at the beginning, and just a thought that occurred to me. I was recently listening to a well-known podcaster, way more well-known than me, and he was talking about how he's like off-grid, I would say almost now. Like he's basically off-grid with backup. So like he has, he's plugged into the grid, but if the grid goes down, he's got power. And probably a great plan for him, but you could tell by listening to him. And I understand, I pay people to do work for me too. Like he touched nothing. Everything was installed by somebody else, which is fine up to that point. Um, but you could tell that he knew nothing right, right. about that system at all. And, you know, many years ago, I moved to my first property that had a well, right? So I'm off grid for the water. And I really quickly learned something. That means when your well doesn't work, no one cares, right? Like if I'm on city of Fort Worth's water and the water goes off, if I do nothing, odds are sooner or later, it will come back. Right, right. So I'm like, yeah, I, I better learn all about this well. And so I learned that system pretty well where if little things went wrong that I could fix, I could, if I needed anything less than replace the whole pump, I could do it, right? Cause I didn't have a pump sitting there. And, uh, then when we moved our off grid place up in Arkansas, that well had a habit of being struck by lightning. And there was a little thing that you could just basically yank out of a box and shove back in and it would work again. And they were always hard to come by because it was an old model. So I bought two of them and kept them on a shelf and I knew how to fix it. And I'm thinking for some people, if their solution to going off grid, whether it's a well, whether it's power with solar or wind or whatever, if they don't know anything about that system, in some ways, you know, not long term grid down, but interruption level day to day thing, they might be worse off because there's no one to fix it. At least you better find you know, an electrician that knows solar or a plumber that knows wells. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, you make a great point, Jack. The, when you have those systems to fall back on, you essentially begin to rely on those systems. And if you can't fix a little small issue with those systems, then the reliability goes to nothing. And you're probably worse off than if you didn't have the backup system. You'll, let's take water, for example, like you mentioned, the well. So if if I have um, city water and I have a well and I don't know how to deal with either one of those situations, I probably don't store any water. Right. Because I always think, well, if the city water goes off, I've got the well. So I'm not storing any water at all. Now, city water goes off. I can't get electricity to the well. I've relied on this backup and now I can't use it. And now I have no water. So, yeah, absolutely. Any of these backup systems that we have. You should know whether it's plumbing, whether it's electrical, whatever it is. Um, you know, you say all the time with with uh, ammunition, you know, if you can't get ammunition for your firearms, you just have an expensive club. Yep. And it's kind of the same thing. If I'm if I'm relying on picking up a magazine and using it when the one that's in the gun is spent, there better be rounds in there. And yep. if there's not, then again, I have a backup that I can't use. Yeah, two is one, one is none, and three is for me because that's what happens is we let go of the three because we got two, and that's two turns into none real quick too. Right. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's say, like, you made a really astute point years ago. Um, another individual was saying, like, solar will never pay for itself or it's at least 10 years or whatever, and you're like, I can make solar pay for itself on the first day. And then you were challenged with, well, no, you can't, and then you said, well, a lot of property that doesn't have any grid power to it. 
And if I can buy the property and install the grid power or the, 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 the solar power or, or wind or any combination thereof, and the less, and it's a less total cost than buying that property that had grid power available, it's, it's dead even or better on day one. And, and you're dead on with that. And that's part of what I want to you know, bring you on today for. So that person's gone out. They found a property. They got a sweet freaking deal on it because it's, it's essentially landlocked from the grid. So they got a great deal on, on the price per acre. And now they're sitting there looking at this square or oval or whatever shape in a trapezoid of dirt and trees. What do they do first? Where do they start? Well, you know, the, the very first thing you got to start with is, is access, right? And that's that's the thing that uh, a lot of people don't really consider uh, when they're doing an off-grid property. All the things that you want to do, you have to be able to get materials onto the site. And and so uh, so the first thing is access, you know, followed for me, if I'm looking at a property, and I did recently buy a uh, very remote, undeveloped property, and I kind of went through some of these steps. Um, this is separate from the off-grid property, uh, but water management is another big one, right? And so I'm, we'll, I'm sure we'll spend a significant amount of time talking about the solar and or wind, the energy side of it. But those are the first two things for me. The two most important things for me is access, because even if I don't have water there, if I've got access, I can always bring water with me, right? But the water being the second thing, water, I need water. And if I don't manage it, if I have too much, it can become damaging, right? And so um, the energy flow of the property is kind of another thing that's important. And so I'll give you a couple examples. Let's say, let's say the property is wooded, all right? And I have a general idea of where my building site's going to be and access isn't a problem, okay? okay? If I am in a heating climate, so a climate where I'm going to spend the majority of my energy heating things up versus cooling things down. I'm going to want to clear the land in front of the building site so that I'm picking up some solar gain. And I, if I'm going to do a solar array, I want to put that in front of the house. All right. That does a couple things. Now that I've cleared this, this area, I've opened up a wind tunnel, so to speak. And so the solar array can actually work as a wind block. It can sh it can take that wind and push it up over the house or around the house. And because I've cleared the land in front of the house, when the sun's going across and I'm getting that solar energy on the PV, I'm also getting solar thermal on the house. If I'm in a cooling climate, I want to do the opposite. I want to leave the shade on the sun side of the house and I want to clear behind the house. That way, I've still got a place to put my solar array. I don't have the 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 issues with, um, you know, more, getting more uh, solar gain, solar thermal gain on the house than the PV can deal with. And assuming I'm in a deciduous forest, when the leaves drop, you know, I'm still getting the nice views. And so those kind of, uh, I guess, some of this is permaculture where we're talking about energy flows. Yeah, those are the first things I want to look at. Um, I can bring in pretty much anything and I can get really, really creative in the design, but I've got to have the access and I've got to understand where my water is coming from. And I've got to understand, you know, if I've got a lot of water on the property. So if I'm in a part of the world where it rains a lot, uh, I've got to be able to manage that. Access doesn't really work if I've got a ditch at the bottom of the property that just watches, washes my road out every time I get three inches of rain. So that's really kind of where I would start 
if I'm if I'm really just getting started with a raw piece of land. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a big Venn diagram with, with uh, permaculture there, right? Because property purchase or property uh, pre-checklist when we're going to do a design on it, first three things, water, access, structure, right? So you didn't really hit the structure as a thing into itself, but like you said, like, okay, this is all going to depend on where the building's going to go. And do I want to shade or not shade the building depending on the situation, right? Am I going to try to cool it down? Well, then I want shade. If I, if I want to warm it up, I'm going to want solar exposure on, on the building. So yeah, water access structure. Um, if you don't want to live in a tent while you're building this and you want to build a decent home, so it's going to take some time. Um, what kind of options do you think there are for that person that's going to kind of bootstrap their property from the ground up? Sure. Um, I tell you right now, Jack, I have a major man crush on geodesic domes. Um, there are a lot of different things that you can do with those. They're easy to build and they're very strong, uh, while still remaining, um, lightweight. So there's actually a place in, I believe they're in Oregon. They're somewhere in the Pacific North, Northwest called Pacific Domes. And they actually make, they take your specs and they make a geodesic dome with the covering and the windows and all of the things for you. And so that's kind of like a, a kit type program. Okay. Um, I've seen, I've been in geodesic domes that were built out of two by fours and plywood that were very cozy. Um, I've seen geodesic domes where people took electrical conduit, crimped the ends, drilled them and then bolted them together to make their structure. Um, I've, I've seen geodesic domes made of aircrete. So those are all options implementing that geodesic dome, um, idea, uh, that are very cost effective. Um, Teepees, I know it sounds kind of weird, but in a cooling climate, a teepee is actually a pretty nice, there, there's a, um, a thermal chimney effect mm-hmm. and you can, you can literally source all your materials, but you're covering on the site. Um, you can get literally with a tarp, you can get a stove jack that gets seamed into your tarp. You can sew it in with fishing line and you can put a, um, a wood stove in your teepee. If you're in a heating climate, uh, kind of a similar situation, but a yurt where it gets same idea. You bring the covering and then you source the building materials on site. Now, with any of those options, I like a constructed foundation, right? So I like having a deck, a solid deck that yeah. I'm building this on. Um, and you can actually plan that. Say, okay, the house is going to go here eventually. This is where the front porch is going to go. Um, I'm going to build a little deck here that's going to be the front porch eventually, but for now it's going to be the support for this temporary structure. Another thing that a lot of people don't think about, um, everyone knows campers, right? Campers are, are really an interesting idea in some parts of the year and some places in the country. Campers are very expensive. But one thing that I found from a camper standpoint that's always inexpensive is class B and C, which are the drivable ones, but not the bus mm-hmm. style, where the engine or transmission is blown out. Okay. So it's not operable, but it's dry and it's, it's a camper. Okay. You tow that thing in and you've got a livable temporary structure. I actually know a guy in Indiana who bought a class A, which is the big like 28 foot bus style version. He bought this thing. Had it towed to his property, put it on blocks. He sold all of the drivetrain components and everything under the hood, basically, for cash. 
put a front porch, a covered front porch on it and a composting toilet in it. And he was done huh. and he was paid for. And I mean, it's a, it's a pretty decent size. This is a single guy. It was a pretty decent size operation for a single guy. Um, and again, the components that he sold were worth what he paid for it. And so he ended up no money having that thing. Now, again, we talk about access. Some of these things you've got to be able to get into, get into the property and a class C camper is a lot easier to tow than a class A, for example. You need a big tow truck yeah. um, for a class A. The other thing I'd say about temporary structure is I know you said no tents, but there are some pretty nice tents. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've actually spent a week in a surplus military canvas tent uh, that was built on a platform. And again, cozy. It You could heat it. It was warm. Um, and so do I want to be out there with something that could potentially get blown off, you know, blown away? Probably not, but there are some, a little bit more permanent, uh, tent options, um, that, you know, again, they're cozy and they provide cover and they provide shelter, uh, during the part of the year where, um, you need that type of thing. Another option, the school bus. Um, there's a reason why the first back to the land movement in the seventies was really based around schoolies. Again, they're big structures. If you can get one, you can, you can literally go to, uh, you know, uh, I think you're, you're in the DFW area. So yep. think about the amount of school buses that that system goes through over, a, you know, a year, they've got a plan. They use them for so long and then they get rid of them. And so it's like a seven to ten year cycle, but that means some district is always dumping theirs every year. And they're auctions, they're sold at auctions. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so um you can get them very cheaply in large school districts, and then you just drive them to where you want, you tear tear up tear out the inside, and um you've got a livable structure. So you know, there's there's something about those that that people miss. And so a lot of times it's like, well, they're beat to shit, the motor's this or that. If it will drive, it's good. Yep. Like, is it, there's a difference between doing like the Justin's Roads thing and turning it into the, a glamour RV and traveling the whole country with one. If you just need a place to live temporarily, if it'll start and run and go there and you turn it on once in a while so you don't let it sit too long without running, that's all it needs to do. And then I, I think one of the really great things about these is then they can either be resold or they can become guest housing, Airbnb, hip camp, et cetera. And I want to throw in something on the military tents. I have a, Large amount of experience, some I'd like to exchange for another option in the past, right, of living in military tents. And they're not that bad. If you do the main thing you said, you need to deck them. Yep. And plywood's gotten expensive, but it's a lot less expensive than two-by-fours or two-by-sixes or decking lumber, right? And it's covered. So when we were in Honduras, we did a 190-day deployment to Honduras. Almost 600 uh, men. And then we had eight people to a GP medium. It's a little tight, but it was still decent living conditions. And the first thing we did was put in decks and with 5-H plywood on them. And I got to tell you, six months later, in a few days, when we took everything down and tore those decks up, that plywood was like brand new. Yep. And that's in the 115-degree Honduran summer, right? Um, all dust everywhere and everything. And I have to say, you know, you went to lunch if you were working on camp and you went back to your tent. It was pretty hot in there. The evenings were 
even there were relatively comfortable sleeping and what have you. So if you're not trying to hang out all day long in your tent living room, even in a hot climate, I think you're pretty good. And I've been in them too in cold climates and they heat just fine. Yep. Uh, and if you're going to live on MREs while you're doing it, little side tip, if you do have direct sun on your tent and you take that meat entree out of your MRE and pull out of the box about eight o'clock in the morning and throw it up on the roof of the tent, about noon, when you're ready for lunch, it will literally be simmering in that pouch. I mean, like when you pick it up, you can feel it vibrating. Nice. Like now that is Honduras, but I'm telling you, it's going to be warm enough to eat in Florida. I promise you. No doubt. But yeah, you got to have the deck. That yeah. is like any of the wall tents, like whether it's Milserp or not. And then one more thing on the military surplus shit. If you get your hands on a military surplus GP medium, you're going to need the poles and everything to go with it. Don't think you and your buddy are going to set that up with two people. There is a beam that goes across the roof of that thing. It's very heavy, and if it falls on you, it'll kill you. Like, that's how big that beam is. And the poles that hold that beam up, I don't know exactly what their strength capacity is, but I know when I was, like, 180 pounds in a soldier and a young man, and our sergeant used to we – we actually had a big generator system that ran the whole camp, so we had lights. So he would come in and – turn the light on to wake everybody up, which is really freaking rude at 4.30 in the morning. So every night we would climb up that pole and unscrew the light bulbs so that when he turned the switch, so those two poles will support two grown men climbing up them. So it's it's heavy-duty stuff. If you if you get one, they're great, but you need some help putting it up. It's yeah. a small-scale barn raising. Um, what are some low-cost Ideas to handle water and sanitation. We hit on water right away because you know, water is life. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of people get um, hung up on rainwater catchment, that it's got to be this super detailed, special, you know, with all the, you know, the, all of the special filtering and everything else. Yeah. And the reality is, is that most of the things that you use water for on a daily basis, you don't need potable water for, Okay. And so that's that's something that I would remind everyone. Um, and, and water catchment can be can literally be something as easy as a tarp strung between some trees that is um, uh, weighted in the middle, so the water goes where you want. And then there's a there's a 55 gallon drum underneath it. It does not need to be high tech. Um, if you if you're fortunate enough to have a well on the property that you are on. Assuming it's a well that where you need to pump water out of instead of, you know, a bucket well, um, you there are options for PV direct pumps. Anytime you have that type of situation, I would suggest to people pump the water slowly up to grade and then take it where you want it or pressurize it from the grade level. It's way more energy efficient to do that than to try to pressurize a 300 foot uh, submersible well pump or more, more accurately to power the pump that you will need to pressurize a 300 foot uh, deep well pump. So, uh, but, but taking that water from 300 feet up to a grade level storage does not take a lot of electricity and you can literally set it up where you direct wire a solar panel to the pump. It fills up. It's on a float switch. It fills mm -hmm. up your storage container, turns off when you're done. And then from there, a sure flow or a, or a one tenth horsepower pump can run a house. Um, sanitation is a little bit more, um, it's a little bit more detailed, but from an off grid perspective, there's really 
in my in my experience, there's really two good options. Now, this is assuming you're not putting in a septic system, okay? Because that's an option, uh, but it's an expensive one. Um, if you're going into a raw piece of land um, and you are what I would call water rich, meaning you get a lot of it from the sky that you can collect, you've got water on the property, uh, you've got a well that it, the flow is good and, and it's it's reliable. Um, there is um, it's called a Solviva vermicomposting septic system. Okay, S O L V I V A. Okay. And so essentially with a, um, and you can do this as simply as with IBC totes, um, you essentially create a vermicomposting system, um, with flush toilets in the house. And, um, this, this system was developed by a lady who lives in Martha's Vineyard and had to get approval for her off grid septic system because her property did not perk. And so. Um, there's all kinds of tests on, um, you know, water quality tests and things like that. The water comes out of the system cleaner than it comes out of um, a traditional septic or a water treatment plant. So that would be if you're water rich, the Solviva vermicomposting septic system is the way to go. If you are water poor, then you're using wood chips and or sawdust. Um, and, and there are some actually really nice um systems i mean there's systems where you, you fill a bin up with with chips you do your business you run a little crank on the back of the toilet it does all the mixing and everything for you and then every now and again you go dump your system um there are uh composting toilets if you if you have some height where you actually are you working with a big bin uh where it's basically a set and forget type system uh you change it out essentially once a year you take the old uh, you know, you take one out, it does its work and you put a fresh one in and then you switch it every year. Uh, those are basically your, your, your sanitation, um, processes. I always say take your gray water and keep it separate from your black water. Um, you can take gray water and, and pretty easily treat it on the property, uh, use it for irrigation and things like that. Most places out, most places where you're going to be off grid, a gray water system for irrigation is perfectly fine and legal. There's no problems. All your state um, uh, systems are fine. Black water is where you get, in, you know, into a, a different type of situation. But there are very easy and inexpensive options for dealing with that. Uh, and again, that Solviva system, um, it's really, it's it, again, it's a set it and forget it type system. You might have to add worms every now and again. You might have to add wood chips every now and again. But outside of that, it's 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 not something where you're walking buckets of poop around your property really often. Gotcha. I'm going to look that up and make sure there's a link for some more information on that one. Rewinding back to where you started that segment when you were talking about the water and you know having like a slow flow pump where if you were filling up something, you'd be like, come on. But it's always moving water to a reserve tank that's at grade or possibly above grade of your structure. Right. So now you have... That you're using energy up, but you're using gravity and volumetric pressure down. This is where I want everybody to get their head around when you're designing anything that's an off-grid system or even things that are on-grid systems. I don't care if it's electricity. Everything's a battery if you use it right. What you're describing there is a water 
battery. We're using a small amount of energy to move a small amount of water constantly to put it in reserve. So either with no energy or a small amount of energy, we can have a large capacity of water later. Right. And that's something people struggle with. You say battery, they think electricity. And I get it. But when I build a pond-based system, that lowest sump in the system is a water battery. Basic, you know, emergency preparedness. If there's space in your freezer, fill up water bottles and throw them in the freezer. Power goes out. You have longer capacity in the freezer, plus you have water. But the ice is thermal battery. Right. Right. And when you talked earlier about taking trees out and letting the sun hit the house, if you're in a climate that needs to be warmed, if you you're whatever heating source you have is offline for a while, you have some level of thermal battery. And I think if you're going to go off grid, you got to like in every system sit there and go, what is or what can be added as my battery in this system? It's not just power generation, but some form of energy storage. Yeah. I tell you the, the other thing that a lot of people, especially if they're considering colder climates, forget about is you are your own thermal generator. And so um, if you focus on keeping the heat against you instead of let, instead of trying to heat your entire house, um, you know, you can be comfortable. Um, yeah. And the other thing is, you know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we talk about the greenhouse effect and how we can leverage that. We, I, I mentioned solar chimneys earlier in a TP uh, work really well. Um, but if I'm in a cooling climate or even if I'm on a, in a warming climate or if I'm in a cooling climate, but it's in the winter, right? Um, sleeping in a loft versus sleeping at the ground level in, in, in a place where I have a, um, a wood burning stove, it's going to be, it's going to be warmer up there. It's going to be more comfortable. Um, and so, you know, it's those little things of identifying where the energy flows are. And then leveraging those, taking advantage, trying to close those loops as much as possible, or at least extract as much of that energy out of the loop before it goes off into nature. So this is interesting because it's actually my next question on the list here for you about security and handling security, because that's something in an off-grid property that we uh, probably don't think about as much as we should. Ron Cole here asked, how would you secure your remote property from getting robbed theft if it's a secondary place? only visit a few times a year. I think there's a security issue when you're there and a bigger one when you're not. I think that's true of all property. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, one of the best investments I made was a simple little sign because I saw somebody else use it and it made me feel sick to my stomach and I was supposed to be there, right? And it said, you're not last, lost, you're trans, trespassing. Yeah. So we put in a gate and we put that sign. You put no trespassing. The people that are going to trespass don't care. But when you put something like that up there, it starts the little human brain like going, well, wait a minute. Like, you know, uh, my neighbor had a sign up on his pole but outside of his gate. So he had to get through my gate, then his gate. And it said stay out or else. And it was written in like lowercase redneck hillbilly, you know, um, backwards letter spelled wrong type, you know. But dang, 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 banjo music style. And that one, he was like one of my best friends. And I still like every time I walked over, I'm like, whoa. Like, I think like some low tech stuff works as well, maybe as some high tech stuff. Yeah. So uh, let me address uh, the the property that's remote that you're visiting uh, infrequently first. Um, so the first one and the number one thing, if there are neighbors, get to know them. Okay. Uh, that is the very first thing you do because they will keep an eye on you. You know, assuming they live there, 
they will keep an eye on your property for you. Um, you know, keep in contact with them when you're away. Uh, so, you know, those of you that might know more of my story know that I lived off grid for a while and, and now I'm back on the grid. So I don't live at the off grid property right now. I still own the off grid property and I know all my neighbors and I talk to them regularly. And if they, if a storm comes through, they're going up and checking for down trees. Um, if they see someone drive up my driveway that isn't me, they get on their four wheeler and they drive up the driveway and they see what's going on. And I have had my neighbors confront people on my driveway before when I haven't been there for two months and said, where are you heading? Oh, I'm just going up here to see what's going on. Well, this is private property. I would suggest you turn around. Uh, so that's the number one thing. Get to know the neighbors and stay in contact with them when you're not there. Um, the second one is it kind of ties into what you said, Jack. Put in a gate, put a sign on it. Now, if you're if your property access is on an easement, which a lot of remote properties are, you want to make sure you talk to the other people that are on that easement and make sure everyone's got a key. If you pay for the gate, there's no problem. But yep. make sure everyone that needs access there has, knows about it and has a key. And again, this is another good opportunity for you to, to get to know. And if there's another property that utilizes that easement that's not accessed all the time, maybe it's just hunting or something like that, leave an extra key with the one guy that lives in the area and then let the other guy know, hey, I'm put this up. I know you're not coming up till this fall. This guy's got your key. Here's a picture of it. Here's the lock, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and everyone's got permission to cut that lock off if there's a problem. You know, that's that's a big deal. A gate and a sign, huge. Yeah, yeah. $10 lock to save a relationship with a neighbor, that's fine. Right. You know. um, the other thing I would mention there is um, if it's really remote and there's not a lot of neighbors. And so I mentioned that I'm 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 planning uh, kind of a bug out location uh, in a very remote area right now. So our strategy there is the things that we don't want stolen from that property go into storage when we're not there. So I will pay to rent a five by five or five by 10 storage unit that's local to that area. And I'll take on my way out, I'll take the things that I don't want stolen and put them there. And then I'll bring them back in with me. That way I don't have to travel across the country with all of that stuff. That stuff belongs to that property, but it's not going to be there to where I'm not going to know what's, you know, missing until I get there, uh, the next time I go visit. That's a, that's a big deal. It's a small investment, uh, but it's, it's worth it. Um, so, you know, the, the property that you don't go to a lot, those are kind of the things I say, you know, we'll, I, we're going to, we'll get to solar uh, here shortly, but I think that everyone needs to understand that if you're only going to this property three or four times a year, solar is not your solution. A small generator, and either gas or propane uh, are the solution. We'll talk a little bit about more about that uh, as we get through the, the show today. Um, but you, you don't want to leave your solar panels there because, it, again, on a property that you're not going to a lot, um, some idiot's going to come through and bust your panels up. If it's if it's an area that people walk through the woods and and you're going to have you know idiots going through there. Um, just don't put yourself in that situation. Now, if you, again, if you're there regularly, anyone that's going to be an idiot is probably going to notice, hey, there is activity on this driveway. I'm not going to bother with that property. Here's another very, very low tech, but it makes the point. Um, if you do any shooting out on your property or if you do any shooting anywhere, um, take a target, um, 
<laughs> when you're done with the target, tape it onto a sheet of plywood or an old yes. uh, stop sign or something and leave it so that it's visible from the front of the property. So yeah. all someone coming down your driveway is going to see is a target with holes in it, right? That, yeah. I mean, that it's low tech, it's easy, but it makes the point. You know, you just gave me an idea. I could put some uh, MERS powered motion detectors on the road and a little uh, audio system in and uh, just record myself when I'm target practicing on my property. And when somebody comes up the path of the road toward the house, trips the MERS detector and that sends a signal and that signal initiates the audio. And all of a sudden it sounds like it's range day on the property. Right. You got gunshots going off. <laughs> Maybe a few dogs barking. I mean. <laughs> yeah, that turns someone away pretty quick. Yeah, I don't think I'm going there. <laughs> you yeah. know, maybe some arguing too. You and know? so <laughs> on, on security for when you're there uh, more often. So all the things I, I just mentioned all apply as well. Um, but you just mentioned it, Jack. You need some sort of uh, way to notify yourself when someone's coming yep. up. Uh, okay, and so uh, on my off-grid place, um, it's a, it's a gravel driveway, and so I'm going to hear someone coming from a, yep. a ways out. But it, I also have an audio when someone gets closer to the house, when a car drives past a, a motion detector, and a little alarm goes off in the house. And so that is, um, um, it, again, it's just that extra. And then that would be if someone's driving up slowly at night where uh, I'm, I'm not going to hear necessarily the gravel, that alarm I'll hear. Um, I would not, if you're going to live on an off-grid remote property, get a dog. A dog's going to hear someone coming up, um, and a dog's going to let you know that someone's on the way in. And they're also going to let someone coming in know that there's a dog here. There's teeth. Outside of that, I leave the, the rest of the security thing to security experts, but those are just general things that I would say from a security standpoint that would apply both to um, a, a property that's a bug out location that you visit infrequently as well as one you're setting up to live there full time. Yeah, and I, the gravel roads are a huge benefit in my opinion. Our place we had in Arkansas, uh, the blacktop ended about a mile from the house, and you literally hear a mile away inside the house. Somebody hit that gravel. And I don't know that you really heard it at first, but after living there for a while, you got tuned in on that and you'd be like, Oh, somebody's on the road. Uh, that's three houses down. Cause like you didn't know how long it took them to get to their driveway and for it to stop. Yep. And, and the dogs, like you're right. Like as soon as those tires touch that gravel, they're looking over they're like, looking. what the hell is that? Do I need yep. to bite somebody? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I agree with all of that. Um, Let's move on to solar because that's probably what most people thought we were going to be spending the whole time talking about. Can you give us some examples of like small, medium, and large solar setups? And even as we go there, I do want to re-hit what you said about this whole, I'm going to have a remote property, so I'm going to put up all the solar and batteries and Tesla walls or whatever. Yeah, I mean, if you're going out to a property occasionally, um, a, a, a generator that goes with you, gives you your power while you're there and it doesn't get stolen because it's not there to be stolen as well. Like, you know, it's not sitting there waiting to go to the pawn shop. Yep. Um, so what are your thoughts there on when we do want to move into solar, where we start and where we end up? Yeah. So, so starting with a very small system. So this is a system 
um, that you can literally put in the back of your truck and take with you when you go out or, or not. I built a system similar to this for a self-reliance festival uh, and took it there last year and demoed it. Um, so this would be a single panel. Um, 400 watt uh, panels right these days seem to be, um, you know, the, the sweet spot has generally been moving up. So yeah. two years ago, 300 watts was the sweet spot for price yeah. per watt and availability. Last year, 315, 325, 350 a little bit. This year, 400s is where is where it's at. Yeah. Uh, so a single 400 watt panel, um, a Renogy charge controller that's matched. So you're going to want to make sure you match the incoming volts and amps to the panel. So get your panel. You've got all kinds of options for your charge controller, but a single small charge controller. Renogy's got some really great options. They've got good warranties. Um, there is some what I call Chinesium on the market. And um, sometimes you've got, you'll have good uh, uh, luck with that. And sometimes you won't. What I don't love about that is that it's typically hard to get a warranty claim. Uh, if you end up with a bad luck one, one that did, you know, one that got pushed through the QAQC. Uh, but I do like Renogy's. Um, put that together with a um, sealed AGM battery. Batteries have become very expensive. Uh, yeah. So a sealed AGM, this is one battery, a 12-volt battery, um, is going to run you about $600 just for the battery, okay? Uh, it's crazy these days. Wow. Um, and then you're going to put that together with a Cobra Pro 1500-watt inverter. Um, this inverter can can handle, or this system can handle pretty much um, any smaller appliances that you might need to run. It can charge all of your stuff. Um, this, what I just mentioned, everything all in with wiring, uh, with maybe a Bluetooth dongle that you want to plug in so that you can check your your stuff. Um, you know, hey, where's my battery at? You can do all that from your phone with with the free app. Um, you're going to be into that with for under twelve hundred bucks. Now you're going to have about a thousand watt hours per day on a sunny day of usable electricity. And so to put that in perspective, you know, you're talking about, you know, a hundred watt LED light bulb or hundred watt equivalent LED light bulb is going to be about 20 watts. All right. So you could run that for 500 hours or one of those for 500 hours off of a day's worth of electricity. Um, and so, you know, in this system, the panel is the limiting factor. And with that system, you could easily later add another solar panel or you could add one additional battery. Right. So small system. It's, you know, it's literally something you could pack up, take with you when you go out. Um, I the system that I built for a self-reliance festival sits on the front porch of my off-grid homestead and it runs security lights. That's all it does. It runs uh, motion detection lights. And so uh, when I'm not there, if, uh, you know, if someone were to start to walk up on the property, the lights are going to come on. Um, and so, again, that system's about twelve hundred bucks. Uh, you know, I typically tell people you want to be in the dollar to two dollar per watt range if you're not building a big system. Um, and so obviously this is closer to three dollars per watt. But again, this is like the cheapest system that you can get in. It's going to be reliable. It's going to be actually useful. You're not going to plug stuff in and an hour after you plugged it in, it's not going to work anymore. And it's expandable a little bit, right? What are you, what are you hitting on there on uh, the battery at 600 bucks for like kind of amp hours and all? Cause you say a 
sealed battery, there's about a bazillion options. Sure. So uh, your your um, uh, AGM batteries these days, a 12 volt battery at that price point is going to run you about 225 amp hours when it's topped up. And of course, you want to design around using about half of that. Uh, or not ever using more than about half of that. You don't want to design where you're using half of it every night. Uh, or you could, but, you know, if you're trying to expend, extend the battery life. So I'm, I'm just trying to get in my head here the cost of this because, I mean, I'm thinking of, like, optimal blue tops and yellow tops. Are they selling for that much now? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, yeah. So the, the literally the cheapest, re- reliable seven-year warranty AGM battery that I've been able to find recently is running about 600. So again, this whole system's 1200 bucks. The battery's half of that. Half of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now you could go with, you know, flooded lead acid batteries and, and get that cost down a little bit. Not much, but you could get that cost down a little bit for the same uh, voltage and amperage. But again, I'm talking about something you could toss in the bed of the truck. And that's why I'm sticking with something that's sealed. Yeah, gee, a mid-state Optima deep cycle AGM Group 31, 847 bucks. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. The other thing about lead I've acid batteries stuff in a long time, man. That's wow. Yeah, they they've exploded. Um, and the the interesting thing though is that the uh, lithium iron phosphate batteries have not gone up in price. They, really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, everything availability is tough on everything. But, um, but yeah, so again, I'm talking about an AGM. The reason why I went with that is this is a small system. You could toss in the bed of the truck and take it out with you, you know, and you don't have to worry about leaking battery acid. You could talk it, toss it in the back. As long as you've got a space big enough for the solar panel, which is the biggest part of this system, you could put all these components in, stack them however you want, uh, and not have a problem. Yeah, because personally, I would be a lot more likely to roll down the Costco pickup to uh, 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 six volt freaking golf cart batteries, put them together, make one big giant 12 volt out of it. If I was doing this small scale system to stay at a cabin or something like that. Right. But if you're moving back and forth, those AGMs are where the gold is. Yeah. And so to put that in perspective, so a Trojan T105 golf cart battery, which is kind of my go to uh, for, for cheap and reliable, uh, for the flooded lead acid, uh, with a core charge, those are going to run you about 200 bucks a piece these days. So, so to get the same amp hour voltage rating that we just mentioned, you'd need two of those. Two of those. Uh, so 400 bucks versus 400 bucks. bucks. Yep. Yeah. So for 800, you could have four of them series in parallel and you start to expand that system. So yeah. You just doubled, you just doubled your usable electricity. Yeah. For, 25% more money. Mm-hmm. You went you went 100% better for 25% more if we're not trying to move things around, right? Right. Um, and yeah, so that really AGM really pretty right awesome. Do you okay. remember the dude that made the electric motorcycle with the AGMs? Yeah. It was it was about 8 years ago and cuz he was able to wire one of them upside down in the bike frame. He had three AGMs and he had like an old Kawasaki you got like didn't run for like 150 bucks on Craigslist. And he made this electric motorcycle and he had to, uh, play with some computer controls on the throttle because until he did it, he almost killed himself the first time torque. he hit it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Cause he didn't have like a, you know, it was, a, it was a straight line up of torque instead of a linear gain. But once he got it balanced, it could run for days on three of those batteries and one of them was upside down. 
Yeah. So I, I think it's pe- important people understand why you're recommending an AGM for that. Type right. Of right. So, you know, jumping ahead to like a medium sized system. So this is a system that could run your small homestead. Uh, it could provide for, you know, pretty much running. And I make this distinction here that's important. Any of your appliances, but not all of your appliances. Okay. Uh, so this system could run any of your appliances, but you don't want to have your washing machine and your compressor on your refrigerator and your microwave all going at the same time. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about with this medium system. Uh, so with this system, I'm going to go with nine 210 watt panels. The reason why I did that is because there's a huge quantity of 210 watt panels that just hit the market. They are used, but they're also going for 25 cents a watt. Uh, you can get those at Sun Elect, which is a supplier we talk about all the time. Um, you can get them at a couple other places, but Sun Elect is, is selling those for 25 cents a watt. Just um, real quick, John, we got a comment here. Is this kind of related to it? He's saying 250 watts, but he's saying he thinks electric companies are turning over their 250 watt panels for 400 watt panels to get another tax credit and double their watts per square foot. Yeah. So the way thought. that the utilities play this game with the tax credit is they try to um, essentially pay, they, they, they try to get their money back in five years, but okay. base everything on a seven-year payback. So if they hit their target on five years, they turn around, they sell the property for the residual value, or they sell the generation for the residu- residual value, and then they replace it, and then they get the tax credit again. So yes. it's the same land. And it's, you know, if they can get a 400 watt panel today for what they spent for a 250 watt panel four years ago, that's now paid for plus profit and overhead expenses, especially if they've gotten better on efficiency and it's the same footprint. So it goes right in the same space. Exactly right. right. Exactly right. Uh, all of their mounting, uh, you know, infrastructure is done. All their wiring infrastructure is done. They may have to change some things up, but the thing is, Typically, with those type of systems, your amperage stays the same. It's the voltage that's yeah. increased. And so higher voltage, you don't have to do anything with the no, water. do nothing. And so, um, so yeah, no, that's exactly what's going on, And which is probably why these 210-watt panels just hit the market at stupid cheap. Um, so, yeah, no, great comment and, and 100% correct. They know how to play this tax credit game. Um, so this system, um, GrowWatt is a new, um, kind of all-in-one inverter system that's hit the market where your charge controller, your What's inverter. That, say that again so I can add it to the notes. GrowWatt? G-R-O-W-A-T-T. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so these are kind of all-in-one systems. Um, and so they replace three components from older systems but with not a huge amount of footprint increase. Um, and so a 3,000 watt, 24 volt to 120 volt inverter, and then four of the Trojan T105 batteries that I mentioned earlier. Um, so that system, as I just described it, is going to run you about $2,500. And now when, I, when I'm quoting prices for these systems, I'm assuming the array is not very far, like within 100 feet of the structure, Okay. And I'm not counting the cost of mounting because mounting can be different. You can put it on all kinds of different things. You can, I mean, we've literally done projects where we used poles that were sourced from the site to build the mount. And then we've also used, uh, you know, where it's all aluminum and steel. So 
So when I'm talking about prices on this stuff, I'm excluding that mounting cost. But this whole system is going to run you about $2,500. It'll run any small appliance up to a small energy efficient refrigerator. It'll run a washing machine. It'll run a dishwasher. It'll run um, a microwave. Um, so it'll do all of those things. But again, as I mentioned, not all of those things at the same time. You want to be smart about how you're using this. Um, and in this system, it's, you're going to have about 2,500 watt hours of usable electricity. So two and a half times the other system. And it's going to be the battery bank, which is your limiting factor here. So as you just mentioned, so this system is a 24 volt system. So if we're going to add batteries with the Trojan T105s, which I'm specking in this system, it's going to be, uh, in multiples of four. So to double my battery bank, 800 bucks plus some additional money for cables and connectors. Um, and this system with that um, inverter that I mentioned, you could increase your solar array by about 50% without having to change anything. And you could double your battery capacity without having to change anything. You just do so it. So we could go to eight lead acid, six volts, four in series, and then in parallel, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the system that I just described is essentially – the original system that I put in, you know, the components are different, but that's essentially the original system that I put in the off-grid homestead in Tennessee. Uh, and those batteries, we ran the crap out of them, um, and they still lasted almost seven years from when I put them in to when I had to replace them. Awesome. Awesome. So move up to something larger, like I want to run my house, and I at least want to run. You know the size of my house, and I run air conditioner. I'm not going to sweat. I'm probably never going to be 100% off grid. If I want to put a dent in it, what would I do? Yeah, so a large system, so the definition of large can go from, you know, big to stupid, okay? Um, Ken Berry actually asked this question to me one time. He said, okay, let's say I don't want to do any lifestyle design. I want to run everything I want to run. I want to do it whenever I want to do it, and I never want to know that I'm actually off the grid. And I said, you can absolutely do that. It's just going to be more expensive. 150 okay? grand. Yeah. So, so what you want to do there is you want to identify what am I running off of the system? Okay. And that's going to tell you how much battery you need on a large system. You know, we've been going this way for years, but for the past several years, the lithium iron phosphate batteries are the way to go. Um, and so just to give you kind of in perspective, so that first system we talked about, a thousand watt hours of usable energy for about twelve hundred bucks. Okay. The second system was twenty five hundred for about twenty five hundred bucks. Okay, dollar and watt. In a large system, I can get five thousand watt hours of usable electricity in a battery for about fifteen to eighteen hundred bucks, just depending on what features and what size I want to do. Okay. Now that's just the battery. Um, but just gives you an idea of how that efficiency jump that you get when you start going to the lithium iron phosphate. And so you want to get your uh, battery bank designed around your usage. And then you want to design your solar array to charge it up every day. And then your other components are just, okay, what do I need to do to connect part A with part B, right? Um, so it all really revolves around the battery bank. Um, you can, if you want to do the work yourself and it's an off grid system, you can get this whole system put in after your tax credit for right around $2 a watt. And so, um, you know, again, I say with the tax credit because you're talking about big money here. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, the nice thing about the tax credit is it's a refundable tax credit. So even if that tax credit ends up being bigger than your tax liability for the year, you do get the difference back. Uh, not a lot of those, not all of those tax credit things are fall into that category, but that's one that does. Um, but so your house, Jack, you're probably looking at a $40,000 system realistically. Okay. Um, and even then, you're going to have to do some design, right? So mm-hmm. all of those pumps that you've got going, yeah, you want them, you want them running in the middle of the day, or or when the sun is is generating the most amount of electricity, or you want them running first thing in the morning when your air conditioner is off. Okay, so there's still going to be a little bit of lifestyle design there, just because um, you want to you want to utilize electricity when it's available instead of from the sun rather than pulling it out of the battery bank. And so when we lived off grid full time, I had an air conditioner. I had a dishwasher. Okay. But I use those things strategically throughout the day so that I can, um, so I can do it without turning my generator on. And then that's the other thing. If I ever have a day where it's super muggy and I'm really running my AC to get the humidity out, Right. It's not overly hot, but oh, my gosh, the humidity is killing me. But I don't have but it's cloudy. OK, well, I just go crank the generator up. The cost of running a little bit of gas through a generator versus going from a 20,000 watt system to a 30,000 watt system. The cost savings is definitely there. So anytime yeah. we start talking about a bigger system, we always want to say, all right, here are the things that I'm designing the system for. And then when I need extra, I'm just going to generate it. Yeah, I think every system like this needs a generator with it. Yep. Right. Just if it's a little bitty system that you're going to put in your truck and you take to your off grid cabin and it goes home with you so that Daryl and his other brother Daryl don't steal it when you're not there. Yeah. It needs a little bitty, you know, generator, a little inverter generator. And if you're living there, you know, you have something in the 4,000 to 8,000 running watt range. Uh, and then that allows for other things too. Like you get in a part of the year where you get a lot of overcast and we're going heading to nightfall and our batteries aren't topped. Kick that bitch on and top those batteries off before it gets dark out. And then you at dark, you want it quiet. You shut the generator off and now you've got full battery power all through the night. Absolutely. You know, I think that's why in some cases, I think some people would be better off if they have more money, make a bigger battery bank rather than more panels. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and the the thing I, I see someone asked a question about a AGM that was on sale for three ninety five. Uh, with those specs, yes, that battery will work. Um, the thing that is that you want to want to remember when you're talking about batteries is that these are heavy things, and shipping will kill you. So yeah. I can go down to Batteries Plus and buy this battery for six hundred bucks, or I can yeah. buy it online for three sixty plus tax. Plus two hundred fifty dollars in shipping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of money in shipping a battery, and I don't blame them. Though I don't know, my shipping might get cheaper for shit like that. I, there's a giant project happening about eight miles at the most from here, maybe less. And we were like, "Damn it, they're gonna put a freaking housing development in there." It turns out it's an Amazon warehouse. So nice. I think my my next day Amazon is gonna become today Amazon real fast. I mean, it's like. Right there. It's you, you've been here, so you know where Silver Creek is. It's right right at the end of Silver Creek in the highway. 
Nice. They put a giant Amazon facility in there. Yeah, I guess there's good and bad with it. Um, what other technologies would you consider for a remote property, Sean? Yeah, so one of the things that I really want to touch on while we're talking here is we can do everything that we need to do to survive without any electricity. Okay. And so, um, the, you know, I, I hear a lot of people saying, Hey, I want to go off grid, but it's cloudy where I live. I live in the Pacific Northwest where it doesn't do anything but rain all the time. Or, um, you know, I live in an area where, you know, I don't want to cut the trees down or whatever. You can do this without electricity. Okay. It just electricity makes it easier. All right. Um, so here are some of the things that I would not use electricity for cooking. Yeah. Right. Agreed. Cook with wood or with propane. If you, if you need quick heat, um, propane is great. Rocket stoves really work. They really do work. A little bit of wood and a properly built rocket stove, which by the way, check out YouTube, a little bit of concrete, five gallon bucket and some stove pipe and you can make a really cheap, um, uh, rocket stove. Um, so utilizing those type of technologies, solar ovens, uh, or other utilizations of solar thermal, uh, which would be water heating, uh, space heating. I mentioned before, you utilize the greenhouse effect, you know, in the summer, um, maybe put a front porch that's screened and sleep out there. And then in the winter, sleep in a loft because that's where the heat's going to go. Um, get to love candles. I, I love candles. Um, they're cheap. They're reliable. Every time I put fire to them, the light comes on. Um, do daytime stuff during the day and, and, and try to sleep at night. Um, you know, a lot of people waste a lot of energy doing things at seven o'clock at night that if they had just done at six o'clock at night and used the last bit of daylight, they'd be perfectly fine. So that's where kind of the lifestyle design starts coming in. Compost your waste. Uh, that's a huge one. It's, it's free. Um, fertilizer, basically, um, line dry or use a drying rack. Um, if you have to have a clothes dryer, put it on a generator. Yeah. You, know, you yeah. don't I mean, try to design a system to run a 240 volt, uh, clothes dryer. And if you put it on a generator, you will actually force yourself because you don't want to go out and crank the generator, put gas, yeah. and do all stuff. Yeah. You're going to force yourself to not waste a whole lot of, um, electricity on laundry if and, you have to crank that generator. If I'm wrong, but I would have it set up. Like, I know that generator is going to run my dryer. Has got to be able to do more than run my dryer. I can't rely on it to run my dryer. So it's going to have surplus while it's running my dryer. So while it was running my dryer, I would be topping up the battery bank. Yep. And I would be do using all my other high-energy shit while that was happening that was normally running off my off-grid system at the same time when I have surplus volume to charge up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, thermal batteries, you touched on that earlier, Jack, utilizing that. Um, and, and we won't go down the rabbit hole of talking about all the different ways a thermal battery exists. Uh, but again, identify those energy flows and, and leverage them. Yeah, I think the commonality there is if you're making heat, don't use solar. To, I should, if you're making heat, don't use solar electric. Use photovoltaic to make yeah, heat. Correct. Don't don't use electric to heat is the least efficient thing that we have. Right. Uh, electric to cold is probably next. And but you know 
the, the reason that there's so many opportunities with the electric to heat and getting rid of it is it's so easy to make heat. It's really easy to make heat. If you doubt it, park your car in a parking lot in the sun. Go spend 15 minutes buying a milkshake, and when you come back to your car, you want to climb inside the milkshake because it's a thousand degrees in there. There's a ton of ways to make heat. Yeah, if you've got a crock pot, instead of turning your crock pot on, put your stuff in your crock pot and go put it on your front porch and let it sit all day. Yeah, yeah. As long as the sun's come out, it will do the same thing. It <laughs> it will. Um, I would say a lot of people, if they're looking, we're talking remote property, but if they're looking to do something solar while they're on grid, there's probably a much faster payback with solar hot water than solar electric. So the, the fastest payback is solar thermal gain. So that's heating with the sun, yep. heating a space with the sun. Um, most studies will show that that's a one-year payback. Okay. Um, solar hot water, almost all systems, two-year payback. Okay. Um, solar photovoltaic, best-case scenario, grid tied, about a five-year payback. I was going to say seven years, so it's gotten better. Yeah. Um, I was a, I was able to get a little bit better payback on that, on the grid-tied system that I did in, in Tennessee, in East Tennessee near Knoxville, uh, because we had a workshop and we charged people to come in, and I applied the profit to the system. And um, everyone learned and had a great time, but that system paid for itself in about two years. Okay. Um, and, you know, that was helpful because I was also able to buy a pallet of solar panels and sell the extra ones, right? So my, my yeah. input costs were lower. But but if you're not going to get cute, the best you're going to do is about a five-year payback. But see, it, I was going to say seven, and that's from a few years ago, and I remember when it was 10. Yep. And when it was 10, electricity costs less. Right. Right. Than it does now. So like, um, yeah, it, it just seems to be compounding. And I, I personally feel we're heading in a direction. I've, I'm sure you've heard Tony Seba's stuff and I think he's just a little ahead of the, the game on his timeline. Um, we're heading to a point where it won't be long. The cheapest power you're going to be able to put in is solar. Yeah. It will be the, and everybody that right now says it'll never happen. All you got to do is look at a graph of what the cost per watt has been traditionally. Well, the other, thing with that, the other thing with that, Jack, is and if you're just talking about generation, solar's the cheapest right now. And it's been, it has yeah. been for about three years. It just takes all the ancillary. It's when's the money going in. That's really what it is, right? So you got a right. payback period. But if the payback period's five years and the life of the system's 20. Easy math. Right. That's not hard to figure out there, is it? I think the other thing's going to drive costs down. I think things like, uh, Tesla, like everybody thinks Tesla's a car company. Tesla's a car company in a way that McDonald's is a hamburger company, right? Like McDonald's is a real estate company. The hamburger pays for the real estate. The cars are paying for the batteries. Right. And I think these power walls are the future. And there's been some test, uh, programs already for like 1100 bucks. They'll come install a solar wall in your house. It's subsidized. And then you got like a lease fee of like eight bucks a month on it or something like that. And people would wonder why would an electric company do that? I mean, you're in the industry, so you can tell people like they're no different than us, the power companies and that it costs them, you know, X to generate power, but X plus Y to store it. Right. Battery. So they have to put these huge battery backup systems into their systems. And it's better for them if they distribute that storage across their grid rather than centralize it. 
and they can move it and pull it around with smart meters and all that. So, I mean, if everybody has a Powerwall or three in their house, the people that are your electric company, their whole lives just got easier. And if one blows up, one blows up. Well, if one blows up in a bank of a thousand of them, you got a much bigger problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I will say that there are utilities right now. I, I, I've literally worked for every utility provider in the United States, um, other than, um, uh, Detroit Edison. So every other one in the entire United States. And I've met with Detroit Edison. Um, and so there are utilities that are testing what they call smart neighborhoods. Okay. Yeah. And where, and the smart neighborhood is, um, you've got solar, you've got storage in every single house. And then amongst the neighborhood, they can share electricity. And then in the center of the neighborhood is a 10 or 20,000 kilowatt natural gas generator. Okay. And that tops everything up. And it's all algorithms. It's do we need, are we going to need to run the generator tomorrow? Yeah. It learns based on, on how much people are using electricity. And so the whole point of this system is not to create this great idea for di- distributed, uh, uh, you know, generation. It's <coughs> to get the data. And it's the same yeah. thing with Tesla, right? So you, you, great idea. The Tesla is there because of the batteries, but all of those miles that are driven, all of that data, the usage metrics, that's the key that allows them to design the next level and the next battery and say, okay, yep. in the, in this style car, I don't need as much juice, but I need the juice to be available or more readily available. Okay. They get that from the uses metrics. And so that's what these t- utilities are doing is they're piloting these programs to start gathering the data so that they, because at the end of the day, you mentioned it, storage is the key. Um, and I actually asked, I won't mention who, but I, one of the ones in the Southeast, I asked uh, their president of generation, why don't you do beho- more behind the meter storage mm-hmm. or you own the storage. It just happens to live in someone's house because my thought process there is, let's say the power goes out. Well, if I've got a power wall, that's 10,000 Watts. So that's 10,000 Watts of the power company's power that that home is going to use before they kick the generator on. And the generator is powered by Exxon or by shell, not mm-hmm. by the utility company. Yeah. And guess what happens when the power comes back on, when the lines are repaired? Well, they got to fill that battery back up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I asked the question and he said, it really comes down to the capital costs, the potential risk and the amount of risk that we can put back on the manufacturer. If we can ever get those three things to come together so that we're willing to spend a billion dollars on that program, we will flip the switch right away. Yeah, because, I mean, I saw one of these programs going on in New Hampshire, some small electrical company that was doing the test of power walls for 1100 bucks. It was 1100 bucks installed for a power wall. And I was like, if freaking Ergot would do that, I'd have five of them here tomorrow. Right. I'd just make a phone call, five. How'd you like to pay for it? Well, a check. Bring it on. And the reason I think this makes a lot of sense tactically for the manufacturers, if I make the batteries and the panels... If I make both and I can get the power companies and public money or whatever subsidizing the batteries, 
And I'm not for it. I'm saying what's going to happen, right? If I can make that happen, how easy did it just get for me to sell you panels? If you can make a phone call to your power company and get two, three, four power walls installed for under five grand, right? And then I'm, and if I know you've got them, and I'm going to know you've got them because they come from me, and I call you up and go, Mr. Mills, I understand that you got yourself four power walls. How'd you like some panels to go with them? That's cheap in comparison. And, right? and now we can sell into that market I'm creating for my – that's why I think this will in time happen. Let's say that my answer is no. Yeah. And then in six months, and I've got six months of your usage data, yeah. and I've got six months of weather data, now I call back and say, hey, I know that you said you didn't want that, but well, I've got six months of data here. I yeah. can tell you to the day how long yeah. it's going to take for you to pay these things back. Now are you interested? Yeah, and I probably am. But you, there's two things you can't sell to, ignorance and poverty. And I always say the ignorance is only if it's willful ignorance, because I can cure ignorance, but willful ignorance is so <laughs> when you're close rate, right? Like the guy you stick in a cubicle and say, here, call this list, is gonna be really high in that model. And that's why I think they'll eventually do it. Um what equipment would you buy versus rent for off grid? So there's a lot of different things that you use when you when you're off grid. Um I have done some cost analysis on a lot of this stuff because I've been off grid and the reality is um, what I would call heavy duty lawn care tools. So a, ch a good chainsaw, um, you know, a good lawnmower, um, weed eaters, hedge trimmers, those type of things. I'd own all of those things. And I would, I would essentially rent everything else. Um, I've had the question before. I think I answered an expert uh, uh, council question. Should I buy a log splitter? Um, and some, as someone who for most of the last 10 years, 100% of my heat has come from wood. Absolutely not. No, because I can get my wood all in one spot and I can split a year's worth of wood in a weekend with a good log splitter. Um, and now I don't have to worry about my. Hoses dry rotting. I don't have to worry about maintenance. I don't have to worry about my pumps going out. I just tow it to the house, split all my wood, and tow it back when I'm done. Um, yeah, the way I'd answer that one is, is there a sign in front of your house that says, we sell and deliver firewood? No, then don't buy one. Right. That's yeah. who that's for. Yeah. So same thing with tractors. Um, you probably know someone in the area that has a tractor. Borrow yeah. theirs or pay them to come use their tractor at your house. Um, there are very few large uh, pieces of equipment that it makes sense to own. Um, and I can tell you that having been a member of several rural communities, if someone's got something, they're almost begging you to let them come to your property and let them use it. Uh, hey, man, I got this new stump grinder. You got any stumps? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I'll have the beer for when we're done. Come on, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember an older gentleman had retired, and he bought, like, a badass snowblower in our neighborhood in Pennsylvania. There's only 13 houses in the neighborhood. Nobody ever shoveled a, a walk again. Yep. He was happy as shit, man. He just, it was like one of those ride-on ones, and he'd just drive up and down and do every, and we had a long, like, it was like a 75-yard driveway. It was perfect when he was done with it. And <laughs> like you said, like, here's, here's, here's 12-pack. I don't need it. Yeah, well, you're getting it anyway. Go give it right. to your brother-in-law, whatever, like. Can't let you do it for nothing. But yeah, he, 
He took care of the whole damn neighborhood. Yeah. And he was retired. He was a retired truck driver. He was bored. I think there's a lot of that. And then there's people they want to run their equipment because they don't run it enough and it kind of needs to run once in a while. Yeah. Like I've you said, dry rod and hydraulic uh, hoses are bad news, you know? Right. I've got a neighbor in, um, uh, Tennessee and literally every time I talk to him, he reminds me that he's got a tractor with a bush hog. And I'm like, look, dude, that field over there, you can knock it down as many times as you want. Knock yourself out. Um, cause I'm going to mow it when I come up, but if it's already mowed, I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of stuff like that. Uh, it's not even just limited to off grid, like stuff that just doesn't make sense to own or it makes, if you have the right people and kind of a captain of it, maybe it makes sense to own at a community level. Right. Right. If you have a tight community like Miss Sauce or something, that'd work. I, I look at my neighbors around here and go, you know, it'd be great if we had a Bobcat or a Mini X between us. And I go, do I want to have the conversation with him? You probably know who him is, right? About, you know, why it needs to be fixed. And the answer is no. I don't, right? If I was where she is, maybe, maybe it would make sense or maybe it makes sense to own it. And then you task it out enough to pay for it. Like Ben Fogg's place. He has a mini X. I think he got it for something stupid too, like 8,500 bucks or something. And it's a damn good little machine. It needed some stuff, but it wasn't that bad. And you know, he, they are on a private, like he does it mostly. So they don't bitch about his students coming there all the time because they're a private unpaved road. So since he maintains the road, everybody shuts up. No, you know, cause they, they, people in those communities tend to overreact. You run two events a year. All the cars come in once. All the cars go out once. It doesn't really mess the road up, but perception. Yep. But now that you solved another problem with it, maybe it makes sense, you know, or can you outtask it enough in the first 90 days to pay for it? Right. Like those are the ways that I guess you don't make sense to own, but to me, if you've ever paid to fix one, you don't want to own one. Right. You know, unless you can afford a brand new one with a warranty, you know, I mean, just buy one hose or one pump. Yeah. And then I don't know why, because you should be able to get at things on that equipment easily. When you think about how it moves and all, like it could be, there's nothing on it that's easy to do, except maybe the one hose on the boom. Everything else is a pain. And I, I was a mechanic and that's why I'm not anymore. Like engineers put shit where you can't reach it. It's crazy. Um, how would you get to know other owners in your area? You got any ideas for like building that community we were talking about? Yeah. I mean, the, obviously the easiest one, if it's an area where there are some residential properties, just go knock on the doors. But in, in the, in the event that, uh, you don't have a lot of that doing business in the area is the number one way to do it. Um, talk to people, um, ask questions. Ask for help. That's another big one. Because what'll happen is, is you'll get, you'll go down to the local store that's eight miles away from your property and you're talking to them and introducing yourself. And then all of a sudden you're like, you know, I've got this, um, I've got this, uh, uh, you know, van that I'm trying to tow up there, you know, to have a livable structure while I build something. But I've got a couple of low limbs that are in the way. And the cashier says, well, you know, John, He's got a big truck and I know he goes around and helps people clearing up when, when wind uh, blows trees over. You say, well, can I get John's information? I like to, you know, ask him if, if I could hire him for a day to come out and help me out. And of course, John shows up, doesn't want anything, brings three of his buddies. Well, now you just met four doers 
in the community. And those are the type of people that you want to meet. Asking for help is huge. A lot of people don't want to do that. Um, you know, you've heard us talk about the Tennessee GSD crew, uh, that we've got going in, in Tennessee. And, and that was really the whole idea there is we want to help each other, but there are members of that community that have only ever showed up and helped other people. And, you know, Nicole and I both say, Hey, you know, what do you need done? What yeah. do you got? What do you have that? So definitely ask for help. It's, it's, it's definitely an easy way to build community and get to know people. Um, you know, a lot of people don't like it, but Facebook, I find that the more remote the community, the more likely it is that the people in that community are on Facebook uh, instead of some of the other newer social media platforms. And a lot of times there'll be a neighborhood or an area uh, Facebook group. Um, and so, you know, looking into that, trying to get uh, in that is, is, is one. Um, do things at your property where you're inviting people to come in to just get to know you. So, uh, let's say you're putting a solar system in or you have put a solar system in. Go on Facebook and say, hey, if anyone's in the area Saturday, I'm going to be grilling burgers and talking about this solar system. If anyone's interested and wants to come out and half the people that show up will already have solar. They just want to see what your system looks like. Yeah. And and they want to get to know their new neighbor that obviously has uh, some of the same ideas as them because you're putting solar in, too. Um if you're in an area that's a little bit more kind of uh, farmstead rural, auction barns and stockyards are a great place to go on the weekend uh, and meet people in the area. Farmers markets can work as well. Um, I find that a lot of times farmers markets are people that aren't really from the area. A lot of times, you know, people that drove in from the big town two hours away. Uh, but those type of people don't show up at the auction barns and at the at the stockyards. Gotcha. I mean, and one thing I would say with this, having lived in quite a few rural and semi-rural uh, places now. A lot of times people move into a place like that and they feel like everybody keeps themselves. Nobody really wants to network and have friends and all. And that's really not what it is. What it is is people assume that person that moved out there wants to be left alone, right? So if you don't initiate contact, it's not like they don't want to talk to you. They just assume you want to be left alone. There's always, you know... Heidi happiness that comes around. I want to meet you. And like, there's always somebody like that in most communities, but most of the people just assume, Hey, this dude in the trucker hat here, Sean Mills moved in. Uh, he ain't said nothing. He must want to be left alone. So and I they're think being, they're being polite and they're allowing you to polite. be left alone. Yeah. It's not that they're being rude and not want to talk to you. They're just assuming until you do something invitational. Hey, this dude moved here. He probably moved here because he wants to be left alone. Yep. And people do leave each other alone. That's one of the reasons we moved the hell out in places like this, you know. Um, yeah, I'll say but, the other thing with that, Jack, is that if you are doing, let's say you're cutting some trees down or you're having some heavy machinery up to do some work, let your neighbors know. The neighbors that you have, you know, your immediate neighbors, um, let them know because they might come up. They might come up and help. Hey, if you're cutting firewood up and someone shows up with a chainsaw and a couple of young guys to stack the wood for you, that's a win, right? That is a win. The other thing is, is that and this is an ancillary benefit of doing that is they'll probably, even if they can't come help, they'll probably check back in on you later in the day. And if you're running a chainsaw all day and they don't hear from you, they'll probably drive up and make sure that you're okay. And sometimes that can be a life-saving uh, conversation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But definitely one way or another, get people coming. And being courtesy wise too, like if you're going to be doing something that's going to be noisy or might have people wondering what's going on, just kind of putting it out there that you're doing it, you get that ancillary effect, but they also don't think you're a dick. 
Like, and they don't think you're cutting their trees down. Yeah, like when we do the big workshops we do here, we have all these people here. I'll just put that on next door. Hey, we're going to be doing our annual thing. There's going to be a bunch of people here. This is what's going on. Just so that the looky-loos don't get nervous about what's going on. Yeah. Right? You know? Yeah, I think that's a good – especially if you're cutting trees and all of a sudden there's going to be a place where you don't have a lot of small engines running all the time or something like that. They're like, what the hell's going on? Yep. Um, yeah, because – the other thing will happen sometimes you move into a place like that. If you don't introduce yourself to everybody, they assume that you don't live there. What are you doing here? <laughs> it's mine. I bought it. And one more thing I'd watch out for when you're buying property, if you can figure out if this is going on. The place we bought in Arkansas, we had a good few years, and it wasn't just us. It was the neighbors had to deal with it, too. The land had been privately owned forever by one guy, and he didn't let people hunt it on it. But and drive four wheelers on it, and all, but he didn't stop it either. He he lived seventy five miles away, and he owned like it was like five thousand acres, and it got sold off, and it got turned into a development, and like it was cool development, like it was five acre minimum lots. Most people had more than that, but we had quite a few years of having to tell people it ain't like that anymore. Right. My family's been hunting here my whole life. I understand, but I bought it. You know, and if you had bought it, you would feel the same way. And there's gates. And just because you used to be able to come up here doesn't give you permission to cut the lock off my gate. And I, I really wouldn't, you know, do that again. It ended up being worthless. But all in, if I had my choice between two otherwise equal properties and one had that history and one didn't, I'd buy the one that didn't. Yeah. Right. Back on the security thing. Like it's easier to secure your property against people that aren't there than people that are there. Right. right? Yeah. Um, for those that are just looking for remote land, you got any other tips other than that one? Yeah, I've got a few. So, um, talk to people that are in the raw land business. There's actually quite a few in our community. Um, and they can give you some ideas of, Hey, there's a lot of, uh, land available in a certain area. If you're interested in going there, um, or they might tell you, you know, Hey, this is this, <laughs> I've talked to four or five people that are trying to sell property in that area and, I wouldn't move there, <laughs> you know, those type of yeah. things. Um, put together a list of your must-haves, your nice-to-haves, and your deal-breakers. Never get emotionally attached to a piece of property. Uh, walk away quickly. Sometimes that can result in a better deal for you. And it will never result in, ah, you know, I really should have bought that one where there was like eight things I didn't like about it, but it had those two things that I really liked. Yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of go in before you start looking for that land and identify what do I have to have? So if I don't have this, I'm out. Or if it has this, I'm out. Um, communications is another big one to consider. Once you've got some properties in mind, go visit them. Um, you know, the reality is, is that rural properties sometimes have a tough job with uh, cellular communications. And so if that's a problem for you, you want to know before you buy the property. And sometimes it will be fine if you have this one carrier, but garbage if you have anyone else. And so that's something right. you're going to want to know going in. Um, if let's just say you got a property with no cellular coverage and that's not a deal breaker for you, it can absolutely be a place to leverage with the seller. Well, yeah, man, I'm going to have to do all kinds of stuff to get communication in here. Yeah. Um, satellite Internet. So if you are lucky enough to be in a place with great um, cellular communications, a lot of times you can just use the cellular data for that. But again, most of these places you can't. So in the U.S., there's three primary providers of satellite Internet. HughesNet, 
which I haven't met a person yet that was happy with it. I don't know if that's a gap between expectation and reality. Um, I've never been a customer. So all I can say is I've talked to a lot of people that have had HughesNet and did not like it. I haven't met one of yours, John. Not yeah. a single one happy with it. I think somebody would be happy with it if it was good. Right. Yeah. Uh, they're probably in business because they're the only option in a lot of places. Um, Viasat is another one, um, and that has previously existed under some brands like Wild Blue and Exceed. Um, the uh, I, I was a Viasat customer when uh, I lived off-grid full-time, and I loved it. I never had any problems, um, or the problems that I had were manageable. They weren't uh, deal-breaker type problems. Um, Viasat, right around the time I stopped becoming a customer, um, actually launched a satellite, a new satellite that had as much throughput as every other internet satellite in existence combined. Um, and then of course the one that everyone knows is, is Starlink. Um, and so Starlink, if it's available in your area, um, everyone that I've talked to that has Starlink has loved it. Now the reality is, is the, the more adoption you get, the more people on that same beam, um, the slower it's going to get, right? So the more customers they get, the worse the product is going to get theoretically. Um, so those are kind of the, the main options, um, you know, to put pricing in perspective. Uh, when I was on the unlimited plan with Viasat, I was paying about 200 bucks a month for my internet service. Uh, and I could get, re- you know, pretty reliably about 25 uh, megabits per second um, down and about three or four up. Uh, so this call would not be happening. Um, you know, I would not be able to do video conferencing because the upload speeds were too low. But I tell you what I did when I lived there and I needed to be on a video conferencing call. I just, I just went into town and, um, I got on the library's internet or I went to, you know, McDonald's. Every McDonald's has free wifi, right? So, um, it was worth it for me to make that little bit of a drive and just have the satellite internet at the house. Um, but again, as cell service gets better, that that will become, um, you know, in a lot of places, the way to go. Uh, talk a little bit about satellite phones. So communications, obviously, is the theme. And, and um, if you're in an area where, hey, I've got one cell tower that I can reach and I got satellite Internet. Uh, but if a big tornado storm came through and knocked the cell tower out um, and my Internet was down for a couple of days, I might not you know, be able to get a hold of anyone. Um, for about a thousand dollars, you can buy a satellite phone and get the cheapest plan I've been able to find is about 50 bucks a month plus taxes and fees and things like that. But at least there, most anywhere in the continental, you know, United States, um, you can get on the phone and call someone, let them know you're okay. Uh, you can re- send and receive text messages. So that would be another option. Um, and then the last one I would say, if you're looking for remote land, you don't already own it. You need to know how far away the hospital is. You need to know how far away the life flight pickup location is. And you're going to want to have life flight insurance because that gets very, very expensive. Um, the property that I'm setting up right now, um, it's so far from a level five trauma center that they actually pick you up and take you to one hospital to refuel. And then they take you to the real hospital. Um, so those are things that you want to consider if that's a deal breaker for you, you know, it's, it's something you want to consider before you stroke that check to buy that property. And then the last one is financing. 
so you need to go in eyes wide open. Um, you're going to, a lot of this is going to be cash transaction. Um, if you're going to build something that's not going to meet all of the insurance and mortgage banking requirements, um, that's going to limit your available pool for money. We were lucky when we went in and we bought um, our off-grid property. The folks that had built the property had gotten a construction loan to do it. They didn't do all the things that were actually supposed Like if the, if the uh, bank had known what they were going to end up with, <laughs> they wouldn't have underwritten the loan, but they did. And we were able to just get our mortgage with the same company that already held the existing one. But again, it's just something to be aware of. It's harder to get in and it's harder to get out. Agree. Agree. Well, let's see if we can, we got a bunch of them. So we're going to see if we can lightning round or maybe be selective here and then we'll All let right. you know. Um, question on used solar panels, power companies. This is what we got. We kind of hit that one already. So I'm going to uh, skip that one. Um, buying yeah, so, I mean, you could buy them. Uh, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't buy a whole pallet without going out there with a multimeter, putting one in the sun and checking and making sure it's putting out what it's supposed to be. Now you're not going to be able to check current because it's got to be underloaded for you to check current. Yeah. Uh, but typically if you're going to have a problem with generation on a panel, you can look at the sticker on the back and it'll say, Hey, this thing is supposed to be generating 33.7 volts. Put it in the sun, put a multimeter on it and see if it's generating that. Cause if it's 20, then you'll take your 20. And you'll multiply that times uh, the amps that's on the back. And that's what the real generation is going to be for that panel. Gotcha. Let's get another used panel question. Jamie says, buying seven-year-old panels, 145 watts, $40 a panel, 25 panel minimum. Good deal? Yeah. Yeah, it's less than 25 cents a watt. Um, again, you want to make sure that you're actually getting 145 watts out of them because a uh, a panel that's rated, that's nameplate capacity is 145 watts, that's seven years old, is probably going to actually be generating closer to 100. So, again, it's, it's you know, you got to downrate that with an older panel. 40 bucks a watt on a 100-watt panel, though, or 40 bucks a panel on a 100-watt panel, that's probably still pretty good. Yeah, I mean, that you're at 40 cents a watt there. Yeah. If it's, if it's actually generating 100, you can get new panels for 40 cents a watt. Okay, then I wouldn't do it. Yeah. That's math, right? That's how quick yeah. that math works out, right? But then you might be able to negotiate on that. Right. Hey, man, check this out. These are 100-watt panels now. And I go buy brand-new ones that do better for less. So do you want to keep them like paperweights, or do you want to move them? Right. That's, I give you 20 bucks a piece for them. Yeah, or you can leave them cast in a shadow on your lot. That's your choice. Uh, thoughts on ESW yield curve versus only S for PV placement. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) yeah. Um, so as long as you can put your panel within 45 degrees in either direction of due south or solar south in your area, you're fine. Uh, so if I put, so if 180 degrees is perfect, yeah. If 180 degrees is perfect and I can get 140, I'm going to generate about one and a half percent less electricity at 140 than I would at 180. Now, once you go beyond that 45 degree from due south mark, you start to fall off. But as long as you can get close, you're okay. This is the oddest I've seen about this ever, and I'm so glad Stephen Harris has gone and not answering it. Um, thoughts on using something like an old Ford Escape 
450 volt hybrid with a broken transmission for battery power storage and emergency power generation. Yeah, so uh, it's not going to obviously generate power, but um, for uh, for storage, as long as you can use it in the format that it's putting out, right? Gotcha. So I've, I've got to be able to get, you know, either one or two legs of 120 out of this thing in order to actually be able to use it. But, uh, yeah, 100%. Okay. There are a lot of people who live off grid and their battery storage is uh, an old battery pack from an EV. Okay. Okay. And maybe it'd be better to yank the battery pack out of it instead of keep the vehicle. Oh, you know what? I just noticed he is say it does say hybrid. So I guess yeah. you could uh you could do some power generation with that. Um, yeah, because he says the transmission's screwed. Well, you don't need the transmission to charge the, the batteries. Right. That's yeah. Yeah. Uh Serrano says, are we going to talk about off-grid internet? We did that. Um, K-Bonk, any resources for off-grid 5-kilowatt co-gen systems? Trash, maybe? Uh, 5-KW is pretty small for co-gen. Um, but, you know, you could always look at, um, you know, uh, kind of a – what was the guy that was on the, the show years ago – that had the uh, DC generators that you'd run off of wood gas. Yeah, I remember. Um, I can't remember his name though. Yeah. I think those were only about a thousand watts, but maybe you could put five of them together. Yeah. Um, you know, so cogens run off of steam. All right, and so you're not gonna you're not gonna put a small steam generator in somewhere, uh, but you could do some with a, with wood gas. That would be another alternate. You uh, could run a generator with wood gas. The problem is, you know, a regular big generator with wood gas. But the problem is, is you're going to gum up the carburetor. So you have to have a way to manage the tars and other things that are going to be suspended in the wood gas. Agreed. Uh, Little Mountain Life says, panels located far from home. What are big considerations for running wire long distances? 200 feet. My, my response probably don't do that. Well, no, 200 um, feet is not a problem. Okay. Um, so all you, so the, here's what happens when you've got long distances. Your voltage needs to go up or your wire thickness needs to go up. Yeah. Either one of those things. So if you put more panels wired together in series, every time you do that, your voltage goes up. So you're running the same amount of electricity or same number of watts with lower current. And current is the problem, okay? So if I have too much current for the thickness of wire, that wire starts generating the electricity into heat. It burns, yes. it breaks, and it creates problems. So you can do thicker wire or you can do... Higher voltage. voltage okay. uh, I've done systems. I did a system last or a year before last in Florida where the array was about 300 feet from okay. um, the property or from where the battery bank and the charge controller was. Um, and we use six gauge wire. Now, I wouldn't wanted to see what six gauge wire is today. That's what I'm thinking. It's not that you can't do it. It's like how much money are you willing to spend to make this happen versus do something else? Because yeah. copper is... Yeah. Yeah. But, but all the, um, all of the, um, you know, power distribution in the United States is all high voltage. And that's the reason is so they yeah. can run more electricity through smaller wires. Uh, here we go. We talked about this before we started. Sean, how do I contact Sean for home battery backup consultation? Website seems to be down. You're yeah, so if you want right to if you want to talk to me about consultation, email me at hackmysolar at gmail.com. 
Um, the website is down. It's down on purpose. Um, it is a, uh, side gig for me and my day job has really been demanding here recently. I'm, I'm probably going to scale down to doing between five and 10 designs per year, uh, for right now. And, um, but that being said, send me an email. Um, if it's something that I can do quickly, I can do it quickly. If it's something that I can't handle, I'll let you know. Gotcha. So pack right here says SunTech 210 solar panels used minimum order 1200 pieces. That's a lot of panels. Um, uh, okay. So you can get them other places. So there are, so that's if you want to buy them directly from Senelec, I'm assuming, I'm assuming that's quoted from the website. Um, you, Senelec has deals with other people. So that's still a retail price. Someone else is willing to go over to their warehouse and pick up a pallet and put it on a truck for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would think that there's a lot of opportunity within this community. If you get on Telegram, you get on Discord, you get on social media, start putting people together. Maybe not that particular one, but like you mentioned that you bought a pallet full of solar panels for your build and you didn't need that many and you sold the other ones. And so there's often opportunity if people will reach out and work together. Yeah, Jake Robinson and I actually did a deal on the way to one of your workshops where we arranged to buy four pallets of solar panels on the way. And, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity to do that. The other thing is because it's easy, it's, it's about as expensive to ship two solar panels as it is to ship a pallet. You can go in with people or you can buy the pallet and then you can sell what you don't need locally. For way more than what you spent when you got the pallet price. Agreed. Agreed. So I think we kind of hit this, but I mean, we can come back on a little bit. Danny says, want a setup for preheating hot water with PV. Do you have a design for just using one element in electric hot water here? I, I'm going to guess that Son's going to say, don't use solar to run a electric hot water here. We can certainly preheat water with thermal gain, but... If it was me and I'm doing an off-grid house, I don't care if I'm preheating it. If I have a water heater, I'm going to have a gas water heater. Yeah. So, um, so to answer the question, Danny, um, if you want to do it with PV, which is what you're saying is, is I'm not talking about solar thermal. Um, what you would want to do is you would want to get a charge controller, um, that has uh, an excess load, uh, capability. And so essentially what you do there is you just run wiring from your charge controller to an electric water heater. And when your batteries are topped off, it shunts all the electricity into that, that, that water heater. Uh, so yeah, if you've got a lot of extra panels, you can absolutely do it. I would not design a system to do that. That would be a, Oh, I'm not using as much as I thought during this specific time of the year. So I'm going to utilize my extra generation by preheating water. That's then going to go into my, um, my propane water heater. But yeah, yeah. That, that's how you would do that. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that, I think would make a lot more sense. I, I have to say the on demand gas water here seem so ideal. Unless you live like Ariel does, uh, in nowhere's Wyoming and it, it, the water starts so cold, it's barely warm when it comes out the other end. Other than that, uh, we have the ones you've seen, the little ones that run off a grill tank for the shower systems here and they're fine. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I've got, I've got one of those that works great. The other thing you can do if you are in that type of climate is bring water into the house to store and use that to go into the water heater. Yeah. I, I agree with that too. 
Eric says, affordable ground mounts, any brand or type of ground mount, Sean suggests. I've seen prices as high as a $150 a panel, three times the cost of used panels. The most affordable is the one that you build yourself out of, you know, lumber. Um, so that would be my first. I, I mean, I've done several systems that are ground mount systems where we just built um, our own mount relatively cheaply. Um, Tamarack, T-A-M-A-R-A-C-K, <coughs> is about the cheapest uh, ground mount um, system that I've found. I, I can't tell you off the top of my head what uh, that runs compared to your 150 per panel. But um, that's why anyone that ever asked me, hey, what if I put a, a, a pole mounted, um, you know, tracking system where it's going to track the panels? And I always tell them, just buy more panels. The panels are so cheap, you're never going to, uh, to, to, to make up the difference of the cost of that system. And it's one more thing in your system that can break now. They go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, when you get at that angle, the percentage of loss and not being perfect is so small that there's no way the cost of that system that canters those panels is ever going to pay for itself. And every half a percent in efficiency gain that the manufacturers come up with makes that even less. Yeah. You know, and I, the I think is horrible. when I look at, you know, curves on things like efficiency, I feel like what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years is going to be insane compared to what happened in the last five. Like well, and what you're going to see is the last five year curve in panels. You're going to start seeing that on storage. Yeah. And that's where it needs, that's where it needs it. Right. Like we've, we've tweaked the panels so much. I guess, you know, there is only a certain amount of surface area. There's a certain amount of potential energy that hits that surface area and we're never going to hundred percent utilization. So there's a, point where you kind of tap out I'm tired boss type of thing where yeah. there's a lot to be done with storage yet on efficiency cost size weight like there's tons of room for improvement there last one K Bonk thoughts on wood gas and biogas yeah so uh, I mentioned wood gas earlier I think it's a great idea uh, as long as you can hand you have to have a system for managing the suspended particulates because they will gum your your carburetor up um, biogas, I love the idea. I've not done much with it. Uh, what I, the, here's the idea I like with biogas. Um, put in a digester and utilize it for cooking. Uh, yeah. Cooking or, or heating water, that type of thing. Um, yeah. I, I love that idea. They, they've actually got a system now where it's a com, it's basically it attaches to the toilet. Um, and you do all your business and it goes into this bladder or this, Fart sack is what we call it uh, <laughs> when we're talking about water wastewater treatment plants. That's what they call it. Yeah. And so as the digestion, bacterial digestion is happening inside that, the sack creates the pressure. It's a bladder. Okay. And then you can utilize that to um, to cook with. It's yeah, perfect. I think it's a great idea. I think it's probably the best use of biogas. I, I really do. And it, it's it's doable. The teching, yeah. like you said, the teching says, I wasn't aware of the fart sack, but I'm aware of other means by which it's done. I've seen it done with like two big blue barrels yep. and one upside down in the other. And when your gas is a little bit lower, you throw a cinder block on top of the and it pushes top it down. barrel to push it down and give it more pressure. And you take an old gas stove and plumb it into it and, you know, set it up to run on propane versus nat gas, which has a little different orifices. So it's a little more efficient for that. And, it works rather well, yep. you know. 
One more because it's a good question. Thoughts on thermal electric generators, Seaback generator, if you're using a wood stove. I think there is a very small um, opportunity where that makes sense. Okay. Um, if if you are off grid without electricity, without solar, and you're just wanting to charge a uh, cell phone or something like that, I think that is uh, a good system. But um, I haven't seen any systems where uh, that really makes a lot of sense compared to the to what those type of things cost. Yeah, probably better with like an anchor charge, you know, plugged into your car that just gets charged up when you drive to the store. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I've even played with the little bitty ones that like the little jet powered stoves and all that are supposed to charge your cell phone and all. And they're just they're just it's it's a cool idea. It seems like there's a lot of heat coming out of there. It just I gave it away. I'll put it. Yeah, it doesn't do much. Right. Yeah, because they gave it to me and they wanted a review. And then I was like, no, you don't. And then they're like, we'll send it back. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, well, we don't really want it back. So I ended up giving it away. Um, Kvonk says, what is the, who, who makes the fart sacks? Uh, I, I, I don't know off the top of my head. I'll get the information. I'll email it to Jack so we can include it in the uh, show notes. Cool. Sean, I really appreciate having you today. Uh, we had to wait a while because you've been so busy globe trotting and doing all kinds of work out there, putting these systems in for folks. Uh, but I appreciate you being with us again. The website is hackmysolar.com, but it is not up right now, but you can get with Sean by emailing him because he's crazy and he gave out his personal email address. I won't say it again unless you want to say it, Sean. Yeah. Hackmysolar at gmail.com. That's the one. All right, guys. And with that, it's been Sean Mills and Jack Spearco today. Uh, a reminder real quick, guys, I will not be, uh, live with new episodes for you until Tuesday next week. I'm going to be down at Float Fest uh, this weekend through Monday, and I'll be speaking there on Monday for those of y'all that get to come there. If you're there, I'm approachable. Come see me. Say hello. Don't be afraid to talk to me. Again, Sean, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.